Today, there are two million descendants of French-Canadian immigrants living in New England. These are our stories. Welcome to the French-Canadian Legacy Podcast. Venez tous jeunes filles et garçons, je vais vous raconter l'histoire de notre immigration ici au USA, de grands aventuriers de pays étrangers. This is the French-Canadian Legacy Podcast. I am Jesse Martineau. Now, as the name of this podcast might suggest, I uh, definitely came at this project from the perspective of a descendant of immigrants from Quebec. And it wasn't until I really started working with the Franco-American Center that I even began to understand how little I knew about Acadia and the Acadian people. And honestly, it remains a topic that I really need to learn better. And thankfully, this episode, we are joined by Lise Pelletier, an expert on all things Acadia. Lise is the director of Acadian Archives at the University of Maine at Fort Kent. Lise, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you, Jesse. It's my pleasure. Now, first of all, can we start with your story a little bit? Where did you grow up? Um, I was born in Fort Kent, Maine, but I grew up on the other side of the St. John River in Clare, New Brunswick. So basically, I grew up with two citizenships, like a lot of the people in the St. John Valley. Basically, you had your baby at the hospital that was most conveniently placed for you. This sure. is before the, you know, the uh, health insurance. And yeah, so it turned into a, a very, very uh, uh, pragmatic situation. Oh, that's interesting. So I assume you, you yourself are of Acadian heritage? Uh, I do have Acadian heritage. Peltier is, however, much more Quebecois. Gotcha. Um, but I have um, I have some ancestors, Acadian ancestors, who uh, were in Acadia as early as the 1630s, and those would be the wow. Chippewas. Yeah. Now, and how prominent a role was this Quebecois and Acadian heritage in, in your life growing up? Sadly, not at all. Living in New Brunswick, uh, we were very much like. Our history book was called Our British History. Oh, wow. Um, in an area that was 100%, and I mean 100% Francophone. So French speaking from many generations, the entire northwestern part of New Brunswick, uh, the upper St. John Valley on the in Maine, and sure. the county of Timiskwara were completely French. However, the authorities at the time, uh, the government in New Brunswick, you know, they history is written by and perpetuated by um, most often the people who remain in authority and have the power to disseminate whatever information they want. And they conveniently just left out that entire history of Acadians or it might have, you know, been a a sentence in a book. Um, as it, anyway, as far as growing up, I had no concept of what Acadia meant, what Acadians meant. I had no idea of the ethnic cleansing the people had been through. And it isn't until I started uh, quite late, I was a non-traditional student, um, and I was deeply involved in uh, French and English literatures that I started learning about Acadian history through its literature. And I was in shock. Um, I was ashamed 
that I didn't know about about this this history and I was angry that I had never been taught. So I made it uh, my mission to to learn about it and um, continued my studies at the University of, of Maine in Orono. Got a master's there um, in French in Acadian literature and since then have been uh, working very closely with history of Acadia and history of the St. John Valley. And I've given a number of classes on uh, those those very subjects. And that's awesome that it wasn't necessarily something that was a part of your life day in and day out, but now you still have dedicated your life to telling this super unique story. And I kind of want to start almost like from the very, very basic, very, very beginnings. I don't think a lot of my listeners know. In fact, I know they don't because I've talked to them about it. What exactly, what even was Acadia? Acadia is a name that comes from an Italian explorer in 1524. And basically, uh, when he hit the New World, he decided he was going to call it Arcadia as a reminder of the Greek and mythical Garden of Eden because it was so beautiful. Oh wow! He might have been in Delaware at at the time, but at any rate, that's when the name officially appears on maps of the area of the New World. And shortly after that, uh, fishermen started coming to the shores, and uh, as they did so, they crept up the Atlantic seaboard and ended up in the area of, let's say now, uh, Massachusetts, um, Maine, sure. and uh, the Maritime Provinces. However, in 1604, because uh, trade with uh, the Mi'kmaq uh, for pelts, especially, and fish, had grown uh, so prosperous, the French decided to settle a, a permanent trading center but also a permanent village so the first to to come along with this uh, new group was uh, samuel de champlain um, pierre dugas uh, sieur desmonts and they established a colony on saint croix island in 1604 so that year is extremely important to the history of Canada because it marks the permanent presence of French people gotcha. in Canada and it's very important for the United States as well because uh, the St. Croix Island is actually right off the coast of Maine. So the first settlement in the United States was not Jamestown. That's awesome. Yeah, and so here again, it's not very well known. Not known at all, yeah. No, so um, very shortly after, the, the, that winter was disastrous. Um, many men died. Uh, the winter was uh, extremely precocious. It came very early and extremely harsh. And at the end of the winter, the men decided to cut across the bay and uh, settled Port Royal. And Port Royal had a fort. It is now called Annapolis, uh, yeah. but that was the fort. And um, that's where the men started uh, the village. And Champlain was there 
And that's where the first playwright was. His name was Marc Lescarbeau. And you can find his writings and his poems. Um, they were published very shortly thereafter in France. So he, awesome. tells about, he tells about uh, these stinging little insects that people call maringouin, which are uh, mosquitoes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> And um, they they have a lot of fun in the winter preparing all kinds of new meats that they find in the forest. Ah, that's awesome. And they are being well instructed by their Mi'kmaq friends. Now, sure. that is something that is, that relationship is, is something that is very different from the relationship between the French in Quebec, New France, and uh, the, the native people in the in Acadia so when we talk about Acadia we're looking today at no, primarily Nova Scotia and southeastern New Brunswick Prince Edward Island Cape Breton Island yep uh, so that is primarily where Acadia is today however the name Acadia has not appeared on any geographic map since 1713. Wow, that's interesting. Now, I did have to ask the question that I get a whole bunch, uh, which is these the Acadians, they come from New France. They're from an area of today, Canada, but yet they're very clearly not French Canadians. They're, they're considered two distinctly different things. And why is that? Basically, the people who settled in New France uh were from the same regions and elsewhere from france so they were french people who came to the new world and there were two french colonies one was acadia and the other one was new france so they were far enough apart that they grew distinctively they grew um independent of each other and the way they migrated to the new world is interesting because it lays the foundation of um, the building of an ethnicity or the distinctiveness of a population for example in acadia a, a lot of families came with their entire families their extended families uh, people from the community so they had a, a ready-made network of people with whom they were going to settle to the new world. Um, in, Interesting. Yes, and in New France, uh, they were mostly soldiers and they were building, uh, but they, they were uh, building and they were at war with uh, the, um, the, the, the First Nations. Sure. Um, and they, they did not settle with families or with wives for a long time. And that's when the daughters of the king, la fille du roi, come into play in the 1660s. They come to Quebec to marry these single men and found families with them. Whereas in Acadia, the families were already built. They were already made in France, let's say. And uh, the people who came afterwards were not necessarily single people. They came as, as family units already. Okay. So um, the other thing that happened is because of the friendship 
between the Mi'kmaq and Acadians or the French in Acadia, uh, there were quite a few marriages between those two people. Uh, there were is there was even a language that was developed to enhance trade between the French and the natives. And at one point when the uh, French authorities um, left the fort in Port Royal, they left for um, to go to France. They they gave the fort uh, for security and protection to the chief of the Mi'kmaq. Oh, wow. Member two. And if you look up the um, order of good cheer, um, it is uh, l'ordre du bon temps, an order that was created by Champlain and that is still in effect today. Um, that's where they had these, these uh, meals concocted during winter. You will see a drawing by Jeffries and it's sitting in the bottom left of the picture are two native people and one of them is chief member two um so that's he, awesome i didn't know any of this yeah he and no it's and it's part of history so it is it is quite quite interesting so the colonies grew very differently so in new france um the land that was created for agriculture came from forests so you cut the trees and then you have to remove the stumps and then you have to fertilize the soil somehow and regulate it so that it can be used for harvesting um, all sorts of things. In Acadia, interestingly, uh, the French settled around the rivers um, that were branching off of the Atlantic Ocean. And so these were salty, this was salty water, sure. and it created huge marshlands. Well, Acadians started drying out the marshlands by building humongous diking systems, uh, which they called aboiteau, done precisely for the specific conditions of, of the Bay of Fundy. And some of these, they are still in existence, they are uh, one of the World Heritage Sites of UNESCO. Um, the one in Grand Prix has been functioning for over 400 years. And now, the Bay of Fundy is the one with the enormous tides, correct? Yes, exactly. So what happens is uh, the Acadians managed to dry out the land. So what they gained was land that was extremely fruitful because it was full of minerals and nutrients from the sea, but had been washed of the salt. And so whatever they grew on there, and of course there weren't any rocks, there weren't weeds, there weren't, it was easy to maintain. And so their crops were at least 20% better than anywhere else. And so very quickly, first of all, the people in Acadia started calling themselves Acadians to differentiate with the French in France um, because their life was so different and they entered into a kind of a, a golden age if you will where the rate of childbirth was exceedingly high the rate of mortality very very low 
they were beyond contagious diseases and and so they lived very very well and they were independent and they were all for the most part farmers and merchants and they did not care who governed Acadia. Um, their model, yeah, their motto was, I don't care if you're French, I don't care if you're British, uh, just leave us alone to farm and we'll do, we'll pay our, our taxes or whatever, but uh, we're not interested in having any war. We're not interested in going to war against our friends, the Mi'kmaq. And we are we are just neutral, so that was different from New France as well, because uh, in Acadia, the authorities it changed, so the colony changed hand seven times in 100 years. Wow! The fundamental constant in these 100 years were Acadians themselves, and they maintained well. We have to self-govern ourselves because. We are here for the long, the long run. We sure. want to give these lands to our descendants. Uh, so they instituted village councils. They worked together to repair the dikes, which were huge, very, very large, and anyway, um, prone to, you know, um, all kinds of things. And so they they learned to work together. Um, and they sold to the British, they sold to the British and the south, uh, southern colonies, so down past Massachusetts, and as well as to Europe, and they did very well. When the uh, British took over, let's say, uh, New France and Acadia, it came very differently for the two colonies. So, in the case of Acadia, they were not invaded by British soldiers. Instead, uh, a, a plan was concocted between the governor of Massachusetts and the governor of Nova Scotia. And basically, it was to remove all the Acadian farmers and their families uh, from the rich, fertile lands and to replace them with good British subjects. The reasons were that the Acadians had steadfastly refused to sign an unconditional oath of allegiance to the British crown. They maintained that they were neutral and that should suffice. However, England uh, wanted them to renounce their Catholic religion and in addition wanted the Acadians to swear an oath of allegiance so that if there was a war, the Acadians would fight for the British against the French and against the Mi'kmaq, which they always refused to do. Finally, in 1730, they did sign a conditional oath of allegiance and they thought they were good. You know, they thought that that was sufficient and it turns out that um, 20, 25 years later, uh, the British government didn't think so. But basically, the, the plan to remove the Acadians was concocted between those two governors. And it's interesting, it's very ironic that it is the correspondence between those two military people 
that gave us the foundation of the history of uh, these expulsions. Because, because when the British and also part of American history, we must face this fact, sure. is that the British were very few in terms of military power. And so they enlisted the help of Americans um, or future Americans, Yankees. Right, the colonists, yeah. The colonists. So like on a ship, they might have 200 soldiers, but 2,000 militia or 2,000 oh, wow. mercenaries. And so the, the bulk of the expulsions and uh, the removal of Acadians and the plunders and the, the, the burnings and um, um, the deaths uh, must fall on the shoulders of everyone involved. Um, and so between 1755 and 1762, um, out of the 18,000 Acadians uh, that were, let's say, is the total population of, of Acadians in 1755, almost all of them were removed. Uh, some escaped to Quebec, but a, a small number, maybe 4,000 in those eight years. And those who were transported, it was, it was horrific because they were told they were being deported. And so Acadians thought they were going back to France or they might be going to the other French colony, which would have been New France, but that wasn't the case. So Acadians would um, be assembled on the shore and they'd be 30 ships out at sea and little boats would come get them and the communities were separated and the families were separated. That's brutal. It's, it gets worse. They didn't know where they were going and they didn't know where the other members of their family and community were going either. And so over a period of eight years, um, the majority of Acadians are transported to, and we're talking mostly French Catholics, and they are being transported to English Protestant colonies along sure. the Atlantic shore. So everywhere from Massachusetts um, to Georgia, um, Virginia took, took look one, at the, look, one look at them and said, oh no, we don't want your kind here. You're gonna stay on that ship. And as soon as we can, we're gonna send you off to a prison in London, which is what they did. Wow. So throughout the, the, those um, expulsions, um, half the population died. And at the end, and, and quite remarkable, were the number of petitions from Acadian uh, house of, household um, leaders or community leaders who would petition the, gover the governor of wherever they, they had landed, and they would denounce their plight and demand to be treated as prisoners of war and not prisoners, period, which they were. They, for the most part, they were kept in, in uh, prisons and not given enough uh, medical care and uh, sustenance, really. And they were not allowed to roam or walk around or 
um, have their own jobs. Um, the children were lent out, some were adopted by British families. And so it was a terrible, terrible, um, it was ethnic cleansing. Sure. Um, and it, it, it is very well documented that that is indeed what it was. There was purpose in all of that. So when I say that it's ironic that we have British documents uh, to lay the foundation for Acadian history of expulsions, uh, I'm very serious because the deeds to the land, of course, had to be burned. And all the documents pertaining to Acadians um, were all burned in order that Acadians felt that there was nothing for them to come back to. It's an incredibly sad story. And as you mentioned, if you looked into some of the personal tales of families getting broken up, it's absolutely brutal to have to read this. Unquestionable. Now, I did want to transition to the Acadians that made their way into kind of what is today northern Maine. Yes. When, did that, when did that start happening? That happened in 1785. What happened there was, uh, as I mentioned, some Acadians escaped the deportation. They fled the area at some point uh, during the years of expulsion. And they settled for the most part in the lower St. Lawrence area, which is not that far from here. This area was extremely well known because it was the great highway between Halifax and Montreal. So it was the rivers were well used, well known, and this area was um, absolutely, had not been developed at all. Uh, there had been, there was a Maliseet village uh, where 60 families lived in the area. But aside from that, there, there were no white people settlements here. So what happened is a group of Acadians who had escaped the deportations or expulsions went to Quebec or this the lower St. Lawrence area and stayed there and married with uh, Quebecois or French Canadians. We'll get back to that term later. Sure. Yeah, I haven't forgotten. <laughs> um, and so when they felt that uh, the war was over, 1763 is the Treaty of Paris, um, they petitioned to come back. They signed an oath of allegiance to England and became British subjects. And so they were uh, given lands that they could develop. The lands they didn't own, they were allowed to develop. And so uh, some of them had started thinking about a permanent settlement at the mouth of the St. John River uh, in an area that is now Fredericton, New Brunswick, or the capital of New Brunswick. And things were going pretty well. The Acadians always hoped that they would get a French priest, Catholic priest at sure. some point. In 1783, though, um, it was the end of the Revolutionary War in the United States. And the British soldiers who'd fought for England, they didn't necessarily feel welcome in the this new uh, country. And so they swarmed Canada and demanded uh, their own province. And so like 40,000 of them came between 1783 and 1785, let's say. 
And at that point, 12,000 loyalists and their families settled at the mouth of the St. John River. And so uh, that completely overturned the Acadians' vision for the future. Sure. First, because the loyalists were demanding big lots of land. So that meant that the forest would be cut down. Well, the forest was a big part of the Acadians' economy because uh, they hunted, but they also traded furs. Um, it would also mean that because of the influx of so many Protestant, it was highly unlikely that they would ever get a, a, a French Catholic priest. And also because the loyalists were demanding that the lands where Acadians were and um, that had not been deeded to Acadians be given to them, that just finished their, um, their hope that they could eventually possess or own the land and transmit them to their children. And so they petitioned the government of New Brunswick and requested land in the territory of Madawaska, which at the time, I mean, you see the St. John River, it's huge. Sure. Um, and uh, it, it um, so the territory of Madawaska was northwestern New Brunswick, the upper St. John Valley on the American side, on the main side, and the county of Timiskwara, that entire area. It was all virgin forests and 60 Maliseet families. So the first Acadian families to settle in this area, um, they came in June of 1785. And uh, shortly thereafter, um, more families come. And, you know, word got out. This was the, they were living on the highway. So they, they let their families and communities know that there was a lot of land here and they could start fresh and build their own, their own settlement with, um, you know, however they wanted to do that. Uh, even if they remained faithful to the British crown, they could still be their own people. And that's how that uh, the, the settlement here started. So the Acadians came to Maine when Maine was not a state. <laughs> before it was Maine, right, yeah. <laughs> before it was Maine and before there was a border. <laughs> and that's an interesting story in itself because I've, I've heard the phrase before that, you know, we didn't cross the border, the border crossed us. Yes. Now, how did that become? How did that come about? Well, um, in the sense that, and I've heard this from older people um, in the St. John Valley, who, you know, were told, you're Acadian. And I mean, I, mean, I, I have some really interesting stories about the families who came here. One of the families who, one of the ladies who was married to a seer, um, was actually on one of the transport ships, the British transport ships, when she was eight years old in 1755. And the Acadians on board uh, basically took over the ship and hmm. steered the ship to the mouth of the St. John River, and everyone escaped. And they escaped, wow. they walked up to Quebec. And unfortunately, a lot of them died, but this young girl grew up 
and eventually came back to St. Anne, uh, that settlement that Acadians hoped would become permanent. And she married a seer, and they later moved to Madawaska territory. So she knew exactly what it meant to be Acadian, and <laughs> that is what she told her kids. Sure. When they came to the area, the family actually had a lot that uh, started on, on one part, let's say in Maine, and continued for two miles. Well, it spanned the entire uh, width of the river. And so uh, the land, their land was both in what is now Canada and what is now the United States. And so the river, it, it was a highway, right? Sure. And, and they didn't cross the river in the sense that it was going into something foreign. I've, I've heard the term as well, we're going to the other side, meaning that the entire whole, both sides were part of one whole. Sure. And so you go, okay, I'm going to this side. No, I'm going to the other side. That expression is still used. I'm going to the other side. So in their minds, um, of course, and it, it was true, uh, the entire territory was on either side of the St. John River. So one didn't exist without the other. And so they were settled. They were one homogeneous people, French and Catholic. And the elements of identity where they connected was really quite infinite because they had ancestors from areas of France. They grew up with the same foods, the same way of rearing children, the same religion, uh, the, the you know, same adaptations to uh, different climates. And, and so all of these same language, uh, same nursery rhymes, same everything that you can imagine, you know, songs, music. Right, right. And so the, the, the ties were extremely tight. Um, and also the families were divided in son and father. So w on one side, you'd have one son and on the other side, you would have the father. And, and so that continued, right? So when the border was, it was determined that the St. John River was going to be the international border, the families were divided and, and a, a quite older person in, in the St. John Valley had told me, yep, and that was our third deportation because the second was at St. Anne when the Loyalists gotcha. came and the third was with this division, yeah. Which is, um, I mean, just to think about the fact that you grow up, you live your entire life in this one giant community, this French Catholic community, and then one day somebody decides to sign a treaty, and then all of a sudden now half of your community is in an entirely different country. Right, and they have no say in it whatsoever. And, you know, I mean, it was, it ended up being quite a pile of trouble um, because the parishes, you know, span both sides of, the, the St. John. Sure. And so, well, it so happened that the parishes on the northern shore now depended on the Diocese of Quebec. And so the parishes on what was now the American 
aside, well, what, where would yeah, they, right. where are we going? Where right. would their orders come from? And those parishes on the northern shore were, you know, you were losing maybe their wealthiest parishioners. And so it was, and, and their leaders, every parish had um, committees and, um, and leaders for, for the entire parish. And, and so it forced the creation of parishes on either side of the St. John River. And for example, the French Catholics of entirely French, entirely Catholic, had to depend on the Diocese of Boston. <laughs> yeah, no, absolutely. This is not anywhere close. No, it doesn't make sense, really. <laughs> um, because uh, the Irish, um, the Irish Americans and the Franco-Americans was sometimes at odds. Um, and so this did not help their their cause at all. Um, yeah, so it was quite disruptive. Um, and especially when you think of uh, preserving a way of life, uh, preserving traditions and especially language. Sure. And the, those are all maintained by the multiplication of interactions between groups of uh, the same members, let's say, or uh, between members of this one group that share all these commonalities. Um, and so when you remove those interactions, then you get, well, you get a lesser, uh, lesser um, opportunities to fewer opportunities um, to maintain uh, those ways of life or even your language and culture. So, yeah. and, you, and you bring up language and culture, which kind of brings me to another enormously important event um, for the Acadians in Northern Maine, and that is the, the law of 1919, where they can no longer speak it in schools. Yes. You read about such a huge impact they had on, on the culture uh, and on, on the society of Acadians that were living in northern Maine. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and it's the way it was done as well. Um, the commissioner at, at the time, the commissioner of uh, education, had stated that um, he had sent around letters to, uh, le uh, to schools in the St. John Valley and said that uh, there would be inspectors going on tours. And if some kids in the school, uh, in school rooms were found to be speaking French, uh, then there could possibly be a um, removal of state funds to that. And these, this is the only language these kids, a lot of these kids knew at the time. That is, that is the absolute truth. And so, um, a lot of teachers took it upon themselves because they were frightened of, you know, losing their only funding. And so they took it upon themselves to devise different ways of punishing students who spoke French during the class, but also spoke French in the schoolyard. Yeah. And it was, it was absolutely horrendous because in addition to the punishment um, much of the time in many, many, many classrooms, uh, what was said to the kids 
uh, was your language is not good. You don't speak the correct French. That is right. the French that, well, you can't say spoken in France because there's maybe 32 different ways of, of course. speaking French. Absolutely. Um, but at the time, they thought they knew better. And uh, that is what they told the kids. So uh, you have a child who can only express himself in French, and he's told that his language is not only inadequate, it is inferior, which means that he is inferior. And some people are still marked, um, traumatized by that experience. And, um, you know, uh, they couldn't figure out who they were because when they spoke English, uh, some some kids had a an accent. They sure, they, of course. They hadn't mastered the English language, and so I I, I remember an eighty two year old man and one of my friends who says, I didn't know who I was anymore, because I wasn't allowed to speak French, and I wanted to use English, but I I couldn't, and I was stuck. I was stuck like. What do I do now? How? Who am I? And it was like being in limbo, right? Um, where the, the the language that he mastered was was not allowed, and the language that he hadn't yet mastered, he he felt ashamed to use. So um, that has persisted very much. So I. I would be very um, interested in, in doing some research, some field work um, on that subject because it has affected generations of people. Um, it has literally stopped people from speaking French to their children. Definitely marks the beginning of the, the decline of the French language in the St. John Valley and also throughout the state of Maine. Which, which was, I'm assuming, the goal of the legislation to begin with. Absolutely, absolutely. Um, there was, it was always the threat, the sheer number of French Canadians or Franco-Americans at the time, if they voted against authority, that authority would, would be gone. Uh, it was the same with the Industrial Revolution. If the workers had decided to revolt, their sheer numbers would have toppled any business. Um, sure. They could have started a union and won. So, uh, yeah, I guess they they had something to be fearful of, although, and it was also, you know, this, you, you needed the outside workers, the immigrants, and yet when they came, you were fearful of them. It's not very different than what it is today, right? And so, Absolutely. And so the importance, therefore, of homogenizing, uh, pasteurizing the population. And from that, of course, there is always a model uh, to uh, aspire to become, and that is the white Anglo-Saxon Protestant, and everything else is inferior. See, we tend to look, and this, this also this way of seeing things is imposed on us um, and that is in a linear ascending fashion or descending, depending on which part of the right, right. ladder you are. 
Sure. That instead of looking in a circular fashion the way First Nations do, we're all on the same plane. And so if if that is the true, is the real way the world works, then somebody has to be at the top. And if someone is at the top, then everybody else is below or inferior. And I saw one statistic when I was getting ready for this this discussion that there were literally zero French programs in public elementary schools in the St. John Valley today. I thought that was that was crazy. There is, I know of uh, one, it, and it's not a program. It used to be a very consistent, like a curriculum. And this is what they taught in first grade, et cetera, et cetera, until yep. sixth grade. Um, we, had, we even had a pilot project that was an immersion, but a, a gradual immersion of French incorporated into the daily uh, classroom activities of kids. And so by the time the kids reached sixth grade, they were fluent in both English and French. Oh, that's and, awesome. And those kids proved to be uh, who graduated from that program, let's say, uh, were very, very far superior intellectually and uh, learned other subjects more readily um, than the students who chosen not to enter the program. You know, it's a matter of money, but it's also a matter of political will. Of, of course. Making. Um, there is in Van Buren, I have a friend who teaches, and she says she teaches French all day long. So she's in, in first and second grade, I believe. Uh, but elsewhere, and, and that's where it needs to happen, of course, um, at elementary schools. Oh, absolutely. Where French has to happen. It used to be that we had teachers who were of the St. John Valley raised in French. And so because of their, their love of uh, the area and the language, they introduced the language without being told to or mandated to. And there is no mandate now because um, there is no accountability. There's no testing for the language or the second language, although students are all supposed to learn one. And so everything else takes a precedent, you know, science and math and English. Yeah, of course. They yeah. all take a precedent because, well, you get tested for those and you don't necessarily get tested for French. Yeah, it's interesting. We are, we're losing the language. Uh, we used to have French even in mass and, uh, you know, pressures, pressures to conform to, um, to other people who did not necessarily appreciate it. Um, and then all of a sudden, you know, we, we lose half our mass in French um, and then we lose French songs in mass. And, yeah, right. Yeah, but um, with all that being said, if you go around the St. John Valley, you can hit almost all businesses and you can be served in French. That's awesome. That's very but, cool. But you're talking about a generation that is, you know, um, that is uh, probably the last that understands and speaks it. And let's be clear, the, the French of the St. John Valley is an oral language because most people who speak it did not learn it in a structured way in school. Sure. So they never learned to read it or write it. So it is an oral language and 
um, they can't they can't write it. And if you if they have a child or a grandchild who's learning French in school, that child is probably learning standard French. So when Pepeir and Johnny want to talk about Pepeir's car, um, Pepeir is going to say, viens voir mon char, and Johnny's going to say, ton automobile, Pepeir? And gotcha. he's going to go, what? Right, yeah, absolutely. Stay char. And uh, that is tragic. And, you know, that's a, um, that's something that is, has only recently become quite abundantly clear uh, with programs that are created to reacquire the language. And, um, you know, you're speaking, when you speak a totally different language, you break the connection between the generations. And so what's the point? So this is going to be my retirement project. <laughs> when, when I retire, I'm going to I'm going to teach Valley French to anybody who wants to learn. I love it. And, you know, I think it'll um, hopefully and I'll invite people of two, three generations so they can connect with each other. Because language is is um, is a is, is a vehicle is a vehicle for emotions and and feelings and um, and also there you know certain words are part of a vocabulary of traditional arts let's say um, that you can't really translate the humor um, you can't necessarily translate some things uh from french to english that that, that that's not the same humor right yeah um, and french is a very fluid language a very mellifluous um, language very um melodic and um romantic um yeah yeah english is more technical um yeah i mean both are are great and when you when you think about it, when you know both, you certainly engage different parts of your brain. So, oh, of course, how can that not help? <laughs> oh, absolutely. Now, I think we can probably do this forever. This has been super interesting. I'm learning a ton of stuff. We're probably gonna have to book you again. But before yeah. we let, but before we let you go, I did want to give you the opportunity. I think we we introduced you from the beginning as the director of Acadian Archives at the University of Maine at Fort Kent. Now, I happen to know we have listeners from a pretty wide variety of places. First of all, where is Fort Kent, Maine? And second, what do you guys have at the University of Maine at Fort Kent in this archive? Okay, so Fort Kent um, is at the top of Maine, uh, the most northeasterly point in northern Maine is the town of Madawaska. Um, we are 20 miles to the west of Madawaska, Maine. Uh, we, this is a border town, so we are directly across the river from Clare, New Brunswick. Um, at, the universe, at the Acadian Archives uh, on the campus, um, we, this is a research center. We do a lot of genealogy. Any Franco-American genealogy 
uh, French Canadian, either Quebecois or Acadian. We go back to the 1600s. A couple of months ago, we went back to 1100. Oh, wow. Yes, very exciting. Um, we also have um, preservation rooms that um, compare to those in conservation rooms in Boston, for example. Um, they're state of the art. Uh, they have fire suppression systems and um, climate control. Uh, we have all kinds of collections, almost 500 collections of manuscripts, photographs, um, artifacts, um, uh, maps, um, let's see, documents that could be diaries or journals, um, all kinds of really, really neat stuff. Uh, postcards, uh, memorabilia, all kinds of things. And they are all entirely accessible to our patrons, anybody who comes. We do a lot of outreach. Uh, we uh, create events on campus for the campus and the greater uh, community at large. We have exhibit spaces um, and uh, we enjoy dabbling in all kinds of stuff. <laughs> Yeah, that's all. Awesome. I, I, yeah, I teach uh, a number of classes uh, to community and um, also online. So yeah, is there a place online where we can check to see kind of the what you guys got going on? Yes, uh, we are at. Uh, let me see what it is. Um, it's umfk.edu/archives. Uh, awesome. Well, thank you very much again. We have been talking to Lise Pelletier from the Director of Acadian Archives at the University of Maine at Fort Kent. Thank you very much for joining us. This has been awesome. Thank you. And get up, Now our fathers look at us and sigh with despair To think that everything they love we simply do not share But the spirit never dies, our culture will survive Each of us must choose how much to keep alive each of us must choose how much to keep alive. Special thanks to Josie Vashon for providing the music. You can find more about her at josievashon.com. This podcast was produced and edited by Mike Campbell. If you have any questions or comments, please email us at fclpodcast at gmail.com. You can also follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at FCL Podcast for more information about the topics discussed. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe and leave us a review on iTunes or wherever you listen to this episode. This program is recorded at the Conquer TV podcasting studio. The views and opinions expressed during this podcast are not necessarily those of Conquer TV. The producer is solely responsible for its content.